So I have a question for those who have been studying the Bible for a very long time. Uh, If I asked you where in the Bible is the roll call of faith, uh, where would you point us? If I asked you where in the New Testament would we find a long list of Bible heroes, faithful servants of God, what chapter and verse would you point us to? I imagine that many of you would say Hebrews 11, right? And you wouldn't be wrong about that, but I don't know that you're necessarily right either. Uh, Because while that is a great uh, list of Bible heroes, people who had great faith in the Lord, there is in the New Testament an even longer list of people faithful to the Lord, faithful to the church, Bible heroes in every sense of the word. And that list is found in Romans chapter 16. And so if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to the last chapter in the book of Romans, Romans 16, and I want us to read this uh, roll call of faith in an unlikely place. You should know that Rome was the capital city of the great Roman Empire. Uh, Rome, the church there, the Christians there, uh, really were... It was one of the most important churches in the strategic growth of the church because it was the gateway to take the gospel uh, to Spain next and then north through Europe. Rome was very important. The church was very important. And this letter, the letter we call Romans, the book of Romans, God chose to share his clearest and most detailed description and explanation of the gospel in the letter of Romans. You don't want to say that one part of the Bible is better than another part, just like you don't want to say one kid is better than the other, even if you know that that's the case. But Romans, if we had to pick a book, Romans would be the book in the New Testament that we would pick. And so we come to the last chapter, and I'll just begin in verse 1. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church of Sincrea. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. And so the first person on this list, this roll call of Bible heroes, uh, is Phoebe. Now Paul wrote the letter of Romans from the city of Corinth, and Phoebe lived not very far from the city of Corinth, in a little port town not far from there, and she was a servant in her church, and she was a servant in the ministry of Paul, and likely was the one who was trusted. And I want you to appreciate what a great trust this was. She was trusted with the book of Romans to take it from Paul in Corinth and deliver it to uh, the Roman church. So Paul instructs the church at Rome to honor her as a faithful servant of the Lord, a faithful servant of his church, and to provide for her whatever she needed for her continued service. Look at verse 3. He said... Give my greetings to Prissa, that's short for for Priscilla. Uh, Give my greetings to Prissa and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. So Priscilla and Aquila, uh, Priscilla was the wife, Aquila was the husband. Does it strike you as odd that uh, Priscilla would be mentioned first? Uh, It would have been odder in that day than it even seems today. It's something, though, that we see a multiple, a number of times in the New Testament. Acts chapter 18, we see it twice there. And this isn't written by the Apostle Paul. When we go to the book of Acts, it's written by Luke. And so two different people referring to the couple, wife first, husband second. Now, we can't read too much into that because the Bible also refers to this couple the other way around. But I think at the very least, that means that Priscilla played a a vital role in that family's ministry to the church. Uh, I love the picture we see 
of their ministry in Acts chapter 18. And we won't turn there, but I'll tell you the story. There was a man by the name of Apollos, and the Bible says he was a gifted communicator, and he was preaching, but he didn't have the whole gospel. Uh, He had part of the gospel, but he didn't really have the Jesus part, and that's pretty important. And so when Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos teach, the Bible says they pulled him aside, and the two of them, and it mentions Priscilla first, the two of them sat down with Apollos and corrected his teaching. They taught him how to teach. They shared the gospel with him. What a beautiful picture of family ministry. Now back to chapter 16, Romans 16, 4, it says here that this couple was known to all the Gentile churches. So the Gentile churches, that's, that's spread out all through modern day Turkey, all the way to Rome. It's a lot of churches and a lot of places, but everybody knew of Priscilla and Aquila. Look at verse 5, it says, greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear Epinetus. Can I just give you a little hint about pronunciation? What I was taught in seminary is that as long as you say it with confidence, it's right. (laughs) So that is pronounced Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. And so he tells us in this verse that there was a church that met in the home of Priscilla and Aquila. And then it tells us something of this man who was the very first convert in what we would call Turkey today. Then verse 6, greet Mary who has worked very hard for you. Now we don't know much about Mary. Mary was a very common name in those days. We know though two things. One is that verse 6 says that she is to be commended for being a hard worker for the ministry of the church, for the gospel. The second thing though I think we could note is that Her work was so well known that the Apostle Paul could just say Mary and everybody knew who he was talking about. Everybody knew. Look at verse 7. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles and they were also in Christ before me. Now here we have another husband-wife team. If you look at how Paul most often used the plural form of apostles, uh, it's likely that these two were itinerant missionaries. They were going and sharing the gospel in different places. Now, before we read any further, I want to ask you if you've noticed something unusual. Paul sure does mention a lot of women. Have you noticed that? If you're keeping score so far, the roll call of faith, four women, Phoebe, Priscilla, Mary, and Junia, three men, Aquila, Epinetus, is how I pronounce his name now, and Adronicus. Uh, I think that's interesting, isn't it? Now, I want to skip a few verses. Uh, Verse 12 says, greet uh, Tryphenea and Tryphosa. Uh, who have worked hard in the Lord, greet my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Uh, So these first two ladies, their names uh, are the Greek words for delicate and dainty. And scholars believe that these were twin sisters. But what we know here is that they worked hard serving the Lord. And then Persis, uh, scholars tell us, would have been an older lady, Uh, still faithful to serve the Lord. Look at verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. So Rufus likely, interestingly, was the son of Simon of Cyrene. Do you know who that was? That was the man who was compelled to carry the cross of Christ when he could go no further with it. And so he comes to know the Lord, his wife comes to know the Lord, his son comes to know the Lord. And so here Rufus is his son, active in the ministry. And Rufus's mom, which would have been Mrs. Simon of Cyrene, she too active in ministry and a blessing to the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 15. Uh, Greet Philologus. 
Uh, don't challenge me on that now. And Julia, uh, Nerus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Now, we really don't know any more about these people uh, than what's found here in this verse, but we can determine their genders because uh, of the way the way the language works. We, we can tell that uh, two of these are men, two of these are women. And then look at verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. Now, this is the verse I want to preach on this morning, and I figured you've probably already kissed the person sitting next to you, so I want you to turn to the person behind you and pucker up. Okay? <laughs> Nobody's puckering. We'll keep going. <laughs> now, what's the point of reading all those verses? Just names, just names. There's no real teaching there. It's just names, just names. These verses established by example what has been apparent in every church from Acts chapter 2 all the way to First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches Women are vital to the work of the church. Women have a place in the work of the church, and their service is valued right alongside the service of men. When Paul goes through this list, Paul makes no distinctions between the service and the value of the service of the men and the value of the service of the women. He doesn't say, let me give you a list of 10 men that did great things, and then let me give you a list of 10 women that were hanger honors. No, he just mixed these together because in his eyes, these are just servants of the Lord, servants in the church, ministers. The church at Rome would not have functioned without the strategic ministry of these women. It's clear from this chapter, and that is at least as true today as it was then. Now let's read the next verse. Let's go one verse further. Verse 17, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Avoid them. So it's interesting that these are put right together like they are. Paul says, warning, there are people who are going to try to create trouble. There are going to be divisive people that say and do divisive things. And we should avoid them. Avoid them. Uh, he noticed, I notice here in verse 17 when he's talking about these divisions and obstacles he says there at the end of verse 17, contrary to the teaching that you learned. See, the Bible says of itself that it is God's revealed truth once for all delivered to the saints. This is God's word. This is God's breathed out truth for us, for our day, for every day. This is the truth and the standard. And he says, if someone distracts you from this, uh, that person is divisive and should be avoided. Listen, church, there are some things in the Bible that, frankly, are very difficult to understand. I'll admit that. Uh, even Peter said that he struggled to understand some of the things that Paul said. Uh, and if I just wanted to confuse you this morning... I promise I could blow your mind with questions that you wouldn't know the answer to. And I don't know the answer to, okay? But the question, at least in my mind, the question of the role of women, the value of women in the church is an easy question. I think the Bible speaks to this pretty plainly. And I want us to look at it. I want us to look at it today. Here's what I want to accomplish. I want us today, through God's Word, to celebrate the role of women in ministry. I want to celebrate it by defining it and clarifying it with God's Word. And then I just want to point to Jesus. We'll do that at the end. Uh, hang on. Even if you don't like the message, I promise you'll like the end. Uh, ordinarily now, I just preach from one passage of Scripture and we just stay there. I get nervous when preachers start just popping all over the Bible, uh, but I'm going to do exactly that today because I want us to see the full scope of, of what God has to say through his word 
about this uh, subject. I'm, I'm not going to be able to say everything I have on my outline and in my research. Uh, so if you would like more information, uh, a fuller sermon, just go to noeldare.org slash resources. It's even there now, uh, but you don't have permission now. Um, but you can go and you can get more uh, of um, what I want to teach about this subject. Now, one more thing before we just jump right in. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not angry. Our church is not angry. We're not mad. We're not mad at people who hold a different view. We're not angry at churches that see these verses in a different way. If there are people here today that just can't stomach what I show you from God's Word, we're not mad at you. There are some things we should fight over in the Bible. And that main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I told you last week, I won't hesitate to call out a church that perverts the gospel. But I think on this issue, our church, our time and energy is best spent empowering men and women to serve, not bashing those people who, who have a different view. Now, where to begin? I want to handle this well. I want to be faithful to Scripture. I want to be humble and kind, fair and reasonable. Uh, this topic came up this week. If you look at your bulletin outline, you'll see I plan to preach something very different than this. Uh, but this came up near the end of the week when some of you, several of you, reached out to me about the comments of a pastor in, a, in another church uh, in our extended community, and you wanted to know um, how that perhaps comported with Scripture. And enough people reached out that I felt like it was timely, and I needed to discuss this, uh, teach this. Uh, so I came to church yesterday morning very early, and I began to study and pray about this. And my prayer, my prayer was that I would have the gentleness of Christ and the mind of Christ. Now in my studying, well, I know what I believe, and I know why I believe it. Uh, but I thought perhaps the, the most productive thing I could do was to take several hours and just read resources uh, written by people that don't see it the way I see it. Uh, because I wanted to fully understand. Uh, when you disagree with somebody, oftentimes it's just because you, you, you understand you're looking at two different sets of facts. And I wanted to understand this from both sides. And so I took 11,000 words of notes yesterday uh, in studying this. And I want to share with you uh, just the fruit of that study. I think the best place to start is 2 Timothy 3.16. We're going to pop all over the Bible, and so follow if you can, but if you can't, I will, I will read and explain. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. Uh, where do we turn for the answer to the question this question and every question, we turn to Scripture. God's Word is revealed. That's why we call it a revelation. And so the standard of truth, the standard of right and wrong, godly wisdom is not what the culture approves. It's not what our personal sense of fairness or equity demands. It's not what we've experienced. It's not how we feel. And it's not what we think. You know, sometimes people will say to me, and they mean well, but they'll say about a subject, Pastor, what do you think? And what I want to say, but I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be chirpy, but what I want to say is, it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what the Word of God says, right? And so when we address this issue, it doesn't matter what I think, and it doesn't matter what you think. What matters is the Word of God. Now, I think God's truth about this subject is a beautiful truth. I think it's wonderful. I think it's encouraging to men, to women, and it points people to the gospel. And I'm going to show you that before we finish up today. Uh, but listen, even if you disagree, even if there is some pushback, let us 
be honest with this 2 Timothy 3.16 verse that says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And let's ask the question, let's ask ourselves the question, do I really disagree on the plain interpretation of scripture or do I just not like it? Okay, I'll just be honest with you. There are times when I read something in the Bible and I just don't like it, okay? But the truth is not determined by what I like. It's determined by what it says. Now, like I said, the plain interpretation of the Bible on this question is going to honor God honor the image of God in women, but even if, even, if that, um, even if that doesn't comport with our way of thinking, uh, the truth is what God reveals. Uh, the scripture is breathed out by God. Now, the second place I want us to turn, Galatians 3.28. I love this passage, this verse. Uh, says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a beautiful verse, and it's good news. So let's see if we can understand what it means and what it doesn't mean. I want to read it in context. One of the problems with this debate and many theological debates is that People just take a verse and they don't look at the verses around it. Let's look at the verses around this verse. We'll start in verse 27. He says, For those who were baptized into Christ Jesus have been clothed with Christ. What is he talking about? He's talking about salvation. Those who've trusted Christ, been baptized. By the Spirit, they have become children of God. They are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And then the verse that we read previously, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you're all one in Christ. Still talking about salvation. Verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. The focus here is Christ. We've all been clothed with Christ, we are all one with Christ, and we are all heirs with Christ of the promise. So what does this verse teach us? It teaches us that all people, Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, have equal status and equal value because all people are in Christ. In Christ. That's good news. That's good news. Now, some people might suggest that this verse removes gender distinction. Because it does say, verse 28, uh, that there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. And so some would say that that says there's, there's no difference. There's no difference in a man and a woman and how they function and the roles that they are assigned in Scripture. There's just no difference. Uh, I think that wouldn't be... Uh, taking this verse in the context that it is given or with just the plain message that it communicates. Uh, gender, male and female, that is not the result of sin. That's not the result of the fall. If you go back to Genesis, God created man and woman and they existed in that perfect garden, in that perfect paradise before sin, as man and as woman, they were different, genders were different, and that's how God created it. Our world today is trying hard to erase gender distinctions in a thousand different ways, but that is always rebellion against God and his creation. And I don't really believe, despite... Much that I read Saturday, yesterday, I don't really believe that this, that people believe that this verse removes gender distinctions. We don't believe that there are genderless people. If there were no gender distinctions, none of us could be married, right? You couldn't have a Christian marriage if there's no longer a man and a woman. 
If you did away with gender distinctives and roles, you'd have to do away with much of the New Testament. Ephesians talks about the differences in the genders. Colossians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, over and over and over. If we say that this verse erases gender distinctions, we've got to pull half our Bibles out and move out of our houses. Okay. Uh, it's just not what the Scripture teaches us in this verse. There's no difference between men and women in that they are equal in the sight of God for the glory of God. Now, let's turn to the passage that creates the heat in the debate. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 11. I want you to know that your pastor loves you. And I got a vacation coming up here in two or three weeks. I may start it early. You know, Scripture means generally what it seems like it means. When I tell my kids something, you know what it means? It means just what they think it means. They don't have to conjugate the verbs or uh, look for hidden uh, decodering messages. Uh, when I tell my kids something, it's because I want them to know. And I say it as plainly as I'm capable of saying it. And I, I believe God is the greatest communicator. So look at verse 11 and 12. And just hold your powder, okay? We'll get to this. We'll answer your questions. It says, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. Now, we need no amens, okay? <laughs> a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. That is the nuclear bomb passage for this debate. So first, let's just break it down, see what it plainly says. It begins by speaking of women. A woman. It's very clear. There's no ambiguity here in the Greek or the social contextualization. It's a woman. Uh, if you read other parts uh, just before or after in 1 Timothy 2, you see that Paul addresses men specifically. He addresses women specifically, and he does so here. Then it says, learn quietly with full submission. Uh, this is a picture of women listening and learning, uh, at least in some setting. We'll learn more about that in a moment. And then he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Now, at first glance, that just, that just seems easy to understand, right? It might not seem easy to agree with. But we're not at agreement, we're at understanding. He says, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Look at that more detailed. He says, I do not allow. So there is at least something that the Christian woman is not permitted to do in the church. Now we could debate what that is, and we're going to get further into the scripture, but there's at least something, right? Wouldn't you have to agree there? There's at least something. He says, I do not allow. That's a limitation. Limitation. And then he says, teach or have authority over a man. Uh, because of some other verses we'll look at in a moment, uh, I think these two words, teach and authority, go together here. Uh, a woman is not allowed just in our plain view of this scripture, a woman is not allowed to be in a position of authoritative preaching over men. And then it says, instead, she is to remain quiet. To make things as clear as possible, Paul not only gives the, you know, the instruction, but then he turns around and gives the converse of that, lest there be any confusion. Okay, now, with that passage read, let me just interview the passage, okay? I want to ask a few questions uh, of that passage, and we'll see if we can find a Bible answer. And listen, church, we're going to be encouraged by this. Question number one, how does this fit with other verses in the Bible on the same subject? That's a fair question. This is what the Bible says here, but what does it say in other places? Well, I read a couple other passages 
Uh, we could read a number of them, but uh, let me read from 1 Corinthians. Just listen. Chapter 14, beginning 34, says, The women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, uh, but to submit themselves, as the law says, and it goes on. But it begins, women should be silent. Now that's 1 Corinthians 14. Now, if we back up just three chapters in the same book, 1 Corinthians 11, listen to what it says. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Now, we're we're not going to preach on coverings this morning. uh, But what I want you to note is that in the same book, three chapters apart, one says when a woman prays and prophesies in the church, she should do it in a certain way. But then we get to chapter 14, it says she should remain silent. Now, what does that teach us? That teaches us that silence doesn't mean complete silence, right? Silence doesn't mean she has no role. It must mean something else. Now, we know that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, so we need to continue to look further. That brings us to question number two. How does this fit with what we see modeled in Scripture? What do we see modeled in Scripture? Do we see women in Scripture taking leadership roles in ministry? Yes, we do. We've already talked about Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila sharing Uh, with Apollos and training him to be a better gospel preacher. We've seen the list of all those women in Romans chapter 16. These are the leaders in the church at Rome. Deborah in Judges 4 was the leader of Israel. Miriam, the sister of Moses, uh, compiled a psalm to help uh, the nation worship. Esther saved the nation of Israel uh, before a wicked king. Uh, The women around Jesus were the first ones who were given the task of sharing the news of the resurrection. Wouldn't that be an honor? Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Pentecost, Peter quotes Joel and, and says that in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and daughters will prophesy. You say, Pastor, I don't know what that means. Well, I might not either. But I know it means something, right? In Luke chapter 8, there's a description of Jesus as he's working his ministry through Galilee. It says that the 12 apostles were with him, the disciples were with him. But then it says that there was a whole host of women who traveled with him. And it names a bunch of them, Mary, Joanna, uh, Susanna, and so forth. In Acts chapter 21, the Bible talks about Philip, Philip the evangelist. You'll remember him from Acts chapter 8, if you know know the book of Acts very well, shared the gospel, uh, faithful to share. The Bible says in Acts 21 that he had four daughters who prophesied. Again, we might not know what that means, but it means something, right? They did something. Yet, there are some things that we don't see in Scripture. And I think this is conspicuous. There are a lot of women involved in the ministry. In fact, probably a lot like churches today, the majority of the heavy lifting was done by the women. Yet, in the Old Testament, there are no female priests. In the New Testament, there are no female disciples, later apostles. There are no female elders or pastor teachers, and there is no example of women teaching uh, the public, in public and teaching the public. Now, I think the lack of examples of those things in Scripture is even more significant, is made even more significant by just all of the women's names that we see recorded, right? You can't say, well, it was a different time and they left the women out. No, they didn't leave the women out. Their names are all through the books. They are doing all kinds of things, except for those four things, except for those four things. Now, let's go to question number three. So how does this honor the value of equality 
equality. Equality is like the banner virtue in America. Everybody wants to talk about equality. And I know that some of you, you're just thinking that. Well, this doesn't sound like equality. What do you mean that there are some things men can do and some things women can do and there are some things men and women can't do? Or well, What do you mean that's not equality? Well, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I could talk for six hours on this and you wouldn't want to hear it, but I just want to, I want to help broaden your perspective a little bit. This is a good example of how we just think different, differently as 21st century Americans than almost anybody in history and anybody in the world. We hold this virtue of equality as the highest virtue, uh, even the virtue of equity, which is something different and much worse. But that's not, that's never a theme in the Bible. In fact, uh, equality is, is, is something that is a very modern American or at least a Western invention. You go back very far in history at all, and there was no talk about equality. That just wasn't even a value. Now, I'm not saying there haven't been good things that have come out of an elevation of the virtue of equality. Certainly, there have been good things that have come out of that. But what I want you to understand is that's not the question that they were asking here. And that's not the question that people have asked until contemporary America, Western culture, Here's the equality that the New Testament deals with. The New Testament people would have said there is equality, but here's the equality. We're all equally sinners. We're all equally lost. And we're all equally died for by Jesus. So that was the only equality that mattered, that mattered. Now, question number four. What was Paul's reason for this instruction? Why did Paul say that women shouldn't teach or have authority over men. Why did he do that? As I've read as much as I could read last day and a half about this, I, I, I think there are really two arguments, two arguments against just the plain understanding of this passage. One of those uh, trajectory hermeneutics, and we don't have time for that today, uh, but maybe another Sunday. But the second one is more important, more uh, relevant, cultural contextualization. Now, here's what that means. People would say, essentially, that the Apostle Paul was giving instructions for a particular culture, or maybe even a particular church in a particular culture. And things have changed. We are, we are modern. We are liberated. We are educated. And so that might have been something that they needed to do. Maybe there was a problem with the women uh, here in Ephesus. Maybe they weren't doing things the right way. Maybe they had a bad reputation. And so perhaps Paul is just saying that those women shouldn't teach. Could that be true? Well, certainly there are some things in the Bible that we can't exactly do like they were commanded. The Bible says a lot about eating food. Uh, when you go to the temple, eating food sacrificed to idols. I, I don't know even how you would do that here in Nacogdoches. Um, we read it while ago, Romans 16, 13, greet Rufus. I hate to tell you this, but Rufus is dead, Okay. You can't follow that command, right? So there are some commands that are tied to different time periods, certainly. Could 1 Timothy 2, women are not to teach or have authority over men, could this just be cultural? Well, we need to see it in context. So let me read those two verses again, and then I want to read the next two verses. I think this will make it plain. 11 and 12, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and she transgressed. 
So Paul is saying that the reason for his admonition in 11 and 12, his command in 11 and 12 is twofold. He says, first, it's because of the order of creation. God created man first, woman second. God created man out of the dust. God created woman out of the man. And God says, that matters. And I've, I read a lot of pages yesterday where people said, that doesn't matter, that shouldn't matter. Okay. It doesn't matter if you think it shouldn't matter, right? Uh, I've, uh, on more than one occasion, told my kids, my house, my rules, right? But this isn't the only place in Scripture that says this. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. The Bible says there, there is, a, there is some significance in the order of creation. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians eleven three, Christ is the head of every man. Uh, man is the head of every woman. God is the head of Christ. So when we push back on this hierarchical system, I can't say that word, uh, it's, listen, it's just because we've never experienced what it would be in a perfect world. Now, the second, um, second thing that Paul points to, he says, first, it's the order of creation. Adam was created first and then Eve. God says that's important. And then, and then, secondly, he says it's based on the way the fall, the first sins. It's the way the fall took place. Now, it's not saying that women are uh, more easily deceived than men. I don't believe that is true. But with the first sins, there was a difference between Adam and Eve, right? Eve was deceived, and so she sinned. Do you know the story? Was Adam deceived? Adam wasn't deceived. He just sinned. Okay? So I'm not saying one's better than the other. Both are sin. Both were wrong. What I'm saying is that there is a difference. And in God's economy, that different ma difference matters. And this passage, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says the reason that we have this distinction in roles is because of the order of creation and the nature of the fall. So when we look at these verses, it's clear that this is not some sort of cultural issue. Adam and Eve, that culture hadn't changed. I know some people don't like it. Uh, and if that's the case, just hold on. You may like it in a minute. But whether or not I like it is not, um, is not the arbiter of truth. If we're going to be people of the book, the whole book, that it seems that we must allow this passage to exclude women from at least something, right? So question number five, I gotta go a lot faster. You listen fast and we'll get out of here. What is the most faithful way to understand this passage? So let's bring it all together. So what is this passage prohibiting? Well, I think we have to understand first that the Bible says that the Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts. These these spiritual enablements for us to do ministry. And there's a list of these in the Bible. The gift of leadership, teaching, exhortation, evangelism, pastoring, giving, hospitality, and on and on and on. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit gives all of these gifts to all kind of people. There is not a gift there that, that a woman cannot be given and she cannot exercise. Every one of them. And a man. Every one of those. We all can, can have those spiritual gifts and we can use them for the building up of the body of Christ. I don't know if you'll think less of me, but I read a bunch of books by women who have the gift of teaching. I read a book yesterday by Susan Foe. Oh, incredible author. I tried to track her down. I don't know if she's still living or not, but... Um, I uh, read a book by Rosaria Butterfield about a week ago. Uh, I love reading books by Jen Wilkins. Um, what is it? The, uh, the Attributes of God, last couple of books that she's written, I think. Listen, God gives men and women these spiritual gifts. There's no distinction. 
But the second thing you've got to notice, not only are there spiritual gifts, but there are also spiritual offices. Uh, Ephesians 4, one place we see this, verse 11, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. So there are different offices. There are gifts to everybody. There are offices. Now, let's focus just briefly on just one office. That's all we have time for. Let's focus on the office of pastor-teacher. Now, that's listed here as an office in the church. And the Bible, the New Testament, uses three words to refer to a pastor-teacher. It calls him a pastor Uh, and uh, we won't go through the Greek words today, but it calls him a pastor, a shepherd, calls him an elder, number of places, calls him an overseer. That's perhaps the most common term. And so pastor, elder, overseer, they're used interchangeably. In a couple of places, all three are used in the same verses. So, uh, so, So these are titles that refer to the office of pastor. So the roles, what do these things mean? A pastor, what does a pastor do? A shepherd, well, he protects the flock and he feeds the flock. He's the primary teacher. He is a primary teacher. An elder, that refers to spiritual leadership, discernment, direction. An overseer is the one who sets the vision for the church and determines the strategy for the church. And so a pastor is someone, a pastor teacher who has those responsibilities to be a shepherd, to be an elder, and to be an overseer. First Peter 5, you see all three right there. Um, a pastor teacher has a position of authority. It's secondary authority to Christ. It's supervised authority to the church. It's evaluated authority with Scripture. But it's an office with Bible-sanctioned authority. Now let's go back to our verse, 11 and 12. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. Here's Here's what that says. You take all of these pieces I believe that is teaching us and telling us that a pastor, elder, overseer is to be a man, a qualified man. And there's certainly more qualifications than just maleness, but a pastor, elder, overseer, shepherd is to be, is to be a man. I don't see any other way to read verses 11 and 12. Now, churches may differ in how they implement the details of this. And the Bible has more to say that we don't have time to talk about. My time's already out and I'm only halfway through. Um, But the bottom line, at least with 1 Timothy 2, is the person or persons in a church charged with the role and the function of pastor, elder, shepherd, overseer of men and women has to be a qualified man. Now, the devil's in the details, right? Uh, and I believe, uh, but, but, the devil's in the details, but, uh, but I believe a, a woman can serve in any other way, in any other capacity. I think the Bible clearly teaches that. Now, very, very quickly, let's talk about, you don't want to hear this, but I got to say it. Let's talk about the Southern Baptist Convention, okay? Just for a moment, I know... Many don't care, but I'll go quickly. We are a Southern Baptist church. What in the world does that mean? That means that we're a part of a whole bunch of other churches that are pooling their money together for uh, missions and some theological education. We invest in the Southern Baptist Convention in that we invest in the work of missionaries spread around the world. I heard a man this week criticize the Southern Baptist Convention uh, in his pulpit, and he said all kind of awful things that uh, just weren't even true. And then he said, listen, and our church gave $1,000 last year. Well, listen, our church gave hundreds of thousands of dollars last year. That guy needs to not talk about what he doesn't know about, right? We know what we're talking about, and let me tell you, that while there are some 
things in the Southern Baptist Convention that if you made me the Baptist Pope, I would change today. I love that we get to pool our money and send missionaries, thousands of missionaries around the world. And I'm willing to put up with a little bit of junk if, uh, if I can be a part of that. Now, you may have heard or read in the news that the Southern Baptist Convention kicked out a church for having women pastors. Is that true? Well, yes and no. So the Southern Baptist Convention has had this view, this scriptural view, of women not being pastors since the beginning. Since 1845, that's how we've understood it. So when a church changes its understanding of that and then is no longer a part of the group, it is more accurate to say that they left than that they were kicked out. Does that make sense? But if you want to say it the other way around, that, that's okay as well. Uh, so the specific church uh, that uh, the controversy centers on is a church in California. And listen, a church I have a great deal of respect for. I don't like everything that they've done. I'm sure they don't like everything I've done. But I have a lot of respect for the ways that God's worked through that church. But about three years ago, a church has been around a while. And, and that church has advocated for exactly what we believe for a long time, for decades. But three years ago, they decided that they were wrong, and they decided to change and believe something different. They get to do that. And then they were surprised that they weren't part of the bunch anymore. And, and, and they didn't just leave. They decided that they would stay and try to make everybody else change with them. And, and that's what the controversy was about. Know this, the controversy was just in the newsrooms. There was little or no controversy at the convention. So when you hear someone say, 10,000 Baptist preachers met two weeks ago, and they didn't talk about Jesus or missions or evangelism because they were too busy attacking women. Listen, um, well, let me give you a few more statements, and then I'll give you my statement. If you hear somebody say the SBC is attacking our minister, if you hear somebody say the SBC does not affirm women, listen, I'm going to be as, as charitable as I can be because I'm in a good mood today. That's ignorance, okay? Charitably, that's just ignorance. The SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, is a group of churches that have voluntarily rallied around about two dozen theological principles and said, let's pool our money for missions. If a church doesn't want to be a part of it, then a church doesn't have to be a part of it. But if you want to be a part of it, be a part of it. Um, now, what about First Baptist Church Nacogdoches? Uh, we have one male pastor and three male associate pastors. I believe that is, uh, believe that just exactly comports with Scripture. We have six other full-time ministers. It just so happens that five of those are men and one of those is a woman. Honestly, the woman is probably the best minister on staff. <laughs> Don't tell her that because uh, there's no raise available. Um, there is no difference in the value of our ten full-time ministers, pastors, associate pastors, ministers, um, church, I'm not saying we can't do better. We can. I can do better. And I hope that one day we will have many women serving as ministers on our church staff. We'll be better off for it. But we embrace the value and the contributions of women in ministry here in every way that the Bible permits. We include women in our worship services. Our children's minister just two weeks ago stood in this pulpit and she did it as well in the summit service and, and taught a Bible lesson, a brief lesson as coming out of vacation Bible school did a fantastic job. Uh, in our celebration service today, we, we had a woman who delivered a 
about the most powerful gospel message I've heard in a very long time. We have women pray. We have women read scriptures, give testimony, sing, play instruments, lead the choir and orchestra. We, we honor women. We need women. But we reserve the office of pastor, elder, overseer for qualified men. And we do this because, listen, and exactly because we believe that's what the Bible teaches. Now listen, I know some terrible things have happened in churches. There have been churches that have mistreated women through the years. That is horrible. That is inexcusable, and that should be condemned everywhere and every time it occurs. But that is not a reason to be less than faithful to what God tells us to do. Now, I promise you, I'm going to make it up to you next week. Now, let, I want to talk about men and women in the gospel really fast. Why are there men and women? Have you ever just thought about that? You ever wonder what preachers do sitting around their office? We think about this. God didn't need men and women. God could have just made one gender, a man or a woman. Uh, it, it wasn't that God made man and was then disappointed that he couldn't procreate. It, 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 oh, no, I messed up. I got to get some more parts. I mean, God could make whatever God wants to make, right? Gender was his idea. It was his idea because he thought it was beautiful and wonderful. And frankly, some of the greatest joys in life are because there's another gender, right? Men, can you imagine if it was just us? So, why are there men and women in the church? Together, men and women better communicate the image of God than either one can do alone. Genesis 1.27. I'm not going to read the verses. I'm out of time. There are things about a woman, a nurturing, loving woman, that pictures some of the beautiful attributes of God in a way that men don't, and vice versa. Uh, you wouldn't paint a beautiful painting with just one color. You need some variety, and God has given us man and woman. Secondly, the trust and submission of a wife to her husband beautifully pictures how we love Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians 5.24 that, that when my wife trusts me and submits to me, not I'm her boss and she's my employee, but when she just trusts me, that is meant to be a beautiful picture of how we just trust the Lord. The sacrificial love a man, uh, by the way, that was Ephesians 5.24. The sacrificial love a man gives to his wife is a beautiful picture of the love that Christ has for us. Ephesians 5.25, when I sacrifice, when I put my wife first, when I do without so that she and the kids can be blessed, that is a picture, the Bible says, of how Christ loves us. The pastor elder of a local church, the male pastor, elder of the local church is a reminder that Jesus is our true shepherd. Our sexual monogamy is a picture of the exclusive love we have for God and the jealous love that God has for us. A woman's devotion and allegiance to her husband is a reminder that there is a greater husband in Christ. I've got to tell you about a phone call. You may or may not know this name, Wendy Colgan. Her husband was the former pastor at First Christian, moved away a year or so ago, passed away a few weeks ago. And um, so Wendy, Charlie's wife, the pastor's, former pastor's wife, um, she called me, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. We talk often, but uh, she called and said, I just got to tell you what breakthrough I've had. She said, one of the things that Charlie, my husband, preached all the time, when he would preach in the Old Testament, uh, he would share how the Old Testament points to the greater Jesus. When you study the kings in the Old Testament, they're pretty flawed, right? You read about those kings, and that points to the fact that there is a greater king, Jesus. When you read about the prophets in the Old Testament, it points 
to the fact that there's a greater prophet. When you read about the priest, there is a greater priest. Jesus is the greater priest. And on and on, she went through every category. She said, listen, I've been so broken because the Bible says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And my husband got gain and I'm stuck with Christ. She said, but it just hit me today that now that my husband is gone, I recognize that Christ is the greater husband. Listen, all this fussing about men and women and flame-throwing by churches and angry whatever. God has made men and women, and he has made us very different, and he has given us different roles. We don't act alike, look alike, and it's all for the glory of God. And we need to quit trying to erase it and let us embrace it. We need to quit talking about equality of roles and recognize that we have an equality of sin and we have an equality of the one who died for our sins. Here's the beauty of all of this. It's not about men and women and roles we play or don't play. It's about Jesus. I'm thankful at our church We're not fighting over things like this because here it's about Jesus. Head bowed, eyes closed. Father in heaven, I know this is an odd message on an odd Sunday. But Father, I pray that you've uh, shined a light to chase away the darkness and the confusion. But mostly, I just pray that we will understand that in men and women, and all the differences, and even the tensions, and in all of that, it's a picture of the gospel and the love of Christ. You have died for the penalty. Christ has died for the penalty of our sins. May we be faithful to trust and celebrate that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.